name is Dr. Reese Granger. Welcome to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. Since the start of the podcast, we've gone over four of the five pillars of things that make up post-concussive syndrome for the next episode when we go over and we put everything together as one. So if we look at it, we have covered cervical spine dysfunction, vestibular and visual disturbances, blood flow abnormalities, and we've touched on the psychological aspect kind of with everything, even though it's its own niche topic, we've molded it in. So today we're briefly going to talk about theories and I want to emphasize theories in the word, okay? So let's not take this as gospel and we'll unpack this as we go through. When I look at things, it's through a systematic overarching approach of these five things and this one today is going to be metabolic in nature which also includes hormones, diet, sleep, basically the whole neuroendocrine system. When we put together post-concussive syndrome or it's now called persistent concussion symptoms because they've changed the terminology, PCS is made up of all five of what we discovered and we went back over just then. So if we think metabolic, C-spine, blood flow, psychological and the vestibular components. Once we briefly talk about the metabolic side, we'll then move on and cover sleep and concussion in this episode as well. And let's get into the cleaned up segment. Cleaned up this week is relatively short due to there's been some big things going on in concussion. However, one of them I'm going to touch on separately so we'll pull that apart. The other thing that I find kind of ironic when it comes to another big thing that's kind of happened in the space of concussion is that another player was knocked out during training for AFL, or should I say loss of consciousness, knocked out, pretty poor terminology coming from myself. And this is after, if you remember, we went through the inquest and the findings, and they were talking about limiting non-contact training. Minced that up. Limiting contact training. Okay, back on track. So, since that inquest, I believe this is the third concussion that's happened since they've stated that. And and if you remember at the time, there was lots of voices, lots of people up in arms saying this is disgraceful. Concussions in pre-season and training barely, rarely happen. And now we're up to our third one. Is this because we're actually on the lookout and we're noticing it more? Or is it because there's actually a prevalence in concussion in contact training? I'll let you make your mind up on that one, but as soon as you introduce contact, there's going to be a concussion. Second thing in the cleaned up section, I don't know if you've seen, but the Australian Institute of Sport or the AIS, they've updated their, we'll say, not guidelines, but recommendations on concussion. Now, this goes for non-elite and juniors, and the way they described non-elite was by the resources that players and clubs had available to them. Pretty much incorporates anything that's like a Sunday league or outside of a semi-professional sports base. They stated that when someone's perceived to have had a concussion or had a concussion, that in order to go back to sport or work or school, is that they have, I think it was, I remember it was like 12 to 14 days mandatory stand down before they resume contact training then 22 days before they resume contact sport. However, the sport that they're playing, if they became concussed playing sport, is to come second behind either return to play, behind 
work and behind school. So they updated that. Again, it's only a recommendation. But now this, the big thing about this is it actually is now in line with New Zealand and the UK with semi-professional or pretty much Sunday league sport. So that's a good step in the right direction. We've still got a lot to go, but you can't argue with that one. And that's pretty much it for cleaned up this episode. Short and sweet. Now let's get stuck into it. Like everything that I state, this is still new and relatively early in the terms of research, which I guess it's going to always happen in the terms of concussion space because of it's at the forefront and it still is relatively new in terms of research terms. What I mean by that and where I'm getting with that is you can always, I don't know, mould the interpretation of the research. So I'm not saying this is 100% and it's also going to work what we're going to discover, but nor am I an advocate against it, if that makes sense. Even though it's outside of my qualification, my lane, my wheelhouse, whatever you want to talk about it, I do read it and... When it comes to the nutrition side of things, I, I know how to count micros, macros, them type of nutrients, work out my base metabolic rate of maths, guesstimate. I've done this for myself with body composition and working things out. I've also delved into the inflammatory side of foods and non-inflammatory side of foods, aid in recovery when I start getting psoriasis, looking at things like that. So in terms of knowledge from personal experience and my qualification, I can provide gross general advice on these things anything deeper like everything have to refer out to a nutritionist or the appropriate healthcare provider especially when it comes to hormones that's not me i have no idea again this is just to provide knowledge information and the thought that maybe if something like this resonates with you to go find the qualified individual that you need in this space in order to help you first let's talk about the metabolic aspect and this is looking at is in terms of purely metabolic components. So evidence is limited and this refers directly to the ATK component of being an ATP deficit during recovery. So if we remember that concussion is like a cascade of events and it's an energy deficit disorder where we don't have enough ATP and demand outweighs the supply, that's what they're looking at in terms of post-concussion syndrome or persistent concussion syndrome. They've changed it so many times, whatever you want to call it. They're looking at that pure, has the body been able to establish ATP back to baseline? Most studies have demonstrated a return to normal function around that 22 to 40 day mark post the initial concussion. And again, this is how long we've seen as it generally takes metabolically to return with no lingering ATP deficits. So... Look, they've found little to no conclusive evidence that the metabolic aspect in this is a result of post-concussion syndrome. The only way that this can actually be a major concern and can actually play out is second impact syndrome, which we've unfortunately seen in the media, more at grassroots and amateur levels, like someone's received a concussion and they've gone back out on the field taken another concussion and unfortunately that's it the second thing is where they've found it is that you return to play too early so just say you got a concussion you go back out and you continue playing you don't get another concussion but you've still kept playing you still go to training the following tuesday thursday and then you play the next weekend they've found that to be a little bit of an atp deficit as well in there 
However, this more comes from overexhaustion and overexerting yourself. If you think about it, once the ATP stores have diminished and they're dropped, we've now borrowed from the bank and they're going to come back and collect their debts and we've always got to pay that back. This then moves into the inflammatory component. So with the inflammatory component and anyone knows that inflammation can be good until it's not. So basically after an injury, there's microstructural cell damage and this is followed by an inflammation response. Once this initial inflammation outstays its welcome, so to speak, more cytokines are released, which these guys' jobs is basically it's a signal from the immune system to say, hey, get over here, clean up an aisle nine, and they control cell growth. This in turn then creates more inflammation because of the cytokines are there when they're not supposed to be there and they're damaging the cells. And then the cycle goes around and around and around. Rothborn and Atoll in 2015 found that neuroinflammation can actually demonstrate concussion-like symptoms. However, this was in animals. And in animals, it's hard to say, hey, mate, how you doing? How you feeling? Like you can a human. You, you can't really tease that out of them. It's also important to note that the inflammation that they demonstrated with the concussion-like symptoms in animals were actually in animals they didn't give a concussion through. It was just that the brain had sustained inflammation through whatever cause, I don't know. I couldn't really find that. Then we move on to also tying the inflammation component into your diet. And then this is an episode by itself. And I'll cover that in supplementation, aid to recovery. Again, supplementation, recovery, it's a theory. And I emphasize theory. And I'm not saying here, take this supplement, it's going to make you better or worse or anything in between. On a hypothesis level and looking at what supplements do and... The physiological aspect, it makes sense. And some of these off the top of my head are creatine, fish oil, but it has to be DHA and EDAs. So, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that at a later. This then leads to another theory, that the possibility of leaky gut. And this is where the cells open up too much and the large proteins actually escape into the bloodstream, which are not meant to be there. And they start attacking the body, causing inflammation, and like we talked with the cytokines, the cycle keeps happening and goes over and over and over. And there's a theory out there as well, which leads to saying that if you've got leaky gut, you've got leaky brain and the blood-brain barrier is compromised. Next up, we got hormones. This is basically the job of an endocrinologist or a well-knowledgeable doctor in that field. And small samples and limited research, and that's... Again, it's left to however you want to interpret it, although it is ever-expanding in the, in the research as massive confounding factors. However, with that being stated, it's been said that in mild traumatic brain injury, some people can develop hypopituitarism, which, which basically infects the hormones because the pituitary gland, most notably, has all to do with the hormones. If you look in the swings of this in the research, it's from anywhere from as little as 15% all the way up to 50%. And this is where I'm saying research is new because if I walk into a room, there's 100 people and you're like, oh, well, there's a 50% chance that X might happen or there's a 15% chance that X might happen. I want to know, is it 50 out of the 100 people this has happened to or is it 15 out of the 100 people it's happening to? There's a huge difference. So that's what I was talking about, how you kind of want to interpret things. However, the most common function affected in the pituitary gland here is the, the growth hormone deficiency. 
in this, we're going to kind of need to do a full blood panel looking at your hormones in order to test this. Yet, yeah, we have to realize that if you're always looking for something to be wrong, you're going to find something to be wrong. And it's really hard to see that you've actually got something wrong with the pituitary gland in this sense because with a concussion, all the signs and symptoms are going to overlap. And the, I think the biggest things you can kind of put your money on if you want to go down this this route will be like is your libido, your sex drive and sexual dysfunction is basically you start experiencing them things post a concussion. Maybe this is something to go down and, and to look at. As we can now tell, and we've discussed most of these theories, there is research and evidence for with the confounding factors. And like all research, we only know to test for what we know. And we've got to create a hypothesis in order to test and to start. Now, the dangerous thing is that someone or something that makes the loudest noise when you, you start testing and start putting this information out there for other researchers to test and validate or dismiss your claims is that we get attached to this idea and it grows legs. And then it's the loudest person in the room that gets their message across. And then before you know it, you got fake news and misinformation and off it goes. And there's no better example of this in the concussion space than the Q collar. I could spend all day talking about this and the relevancy of it and how it works and how it doesn't work and how it got mainstream, but that's not the objective of today's episode. A future episode, I'm going to do all the myths about concussion, like the biggest myths about Q collars and helmets and that, and I'll cover it in then and break it down in a lot more detail. Now we're going to move on to sleep. This is an interesting one and it's one of the most common questions that I get and that people actually ask and we'll cover it again in the concussion myth episode coming up with sleep just to kind of remind you about sleep and how important it is. Now, when a person or an individual has received a concussion, we need to rule out the big bad nasties before we can let them sleep. That That's just a given. You don't want an internal bleed or a hemorrhage and say, hey, mate, go to sleep, because unfortunately they'll never wake up. Also, before we move on, this is going to be brief and extremely oversimplified, as with everything. Now, with sleep, we have four stages, and we run through the four stages on average around six cycles a night, I think, going off the top of my head. Now, we start with sleep N1, and then we move into M2 phase. We move into a deeper sleep, which is N3. And then we move into the vivid dreaming, which is everyone knows as REM sleep. Now, each cycle lasts on average around 90 minutes. However, it can be varied. It can last a little bit longer or it can be shorter. Like 90 minutes is just around that average ballpark. For each stage, we're starting at N1. We're easily woken here. Then as we go along, we move further and further into a deep sleep where it's harder and harder to actually wake someone up. And then we go into REM sleep. And this is actually showing the same brain activities when you're awake. And your muscles actually go through this like temporary paralysis. So like, I guess the biggest thing that I can say here is like if you've ever been extremely tired, you've fallen asleep and you've woken up the exact same way that you went to sleep. So you've pretty much gone straight into a deep sleep. And if you actually wear a Fitbit or a measurable watch, you'll be able to see this in your sleep cycles. Like They're not 100%, but it's a great indication. Now it's... During sleep is when we do most of our recovery and all our memories that we've gone through, that we, things that we've learned, that gets stored, body resets for the next day. I used to believe that you sleep when you're dead 
and no-nonsense mentality. When it comes to sleep, just keep going. However, I got schooled, and after a little one, I could not have been so wrong. Now, on average, we need around six to eight hours of sleep, and that, that's in that range. Some may need more, some may need less, but we're going on averages. Now, it's been shown that the more with sleep studies how we go that sleep actually directly affects and correlates to poor physical and mental health and it explains why if you kind of look at it sleep deprivation is actually used as a form of torture anyway we need good sleep hygiene and this includes things like a dark room um, we, we go to bed and we wake up at the same time every day, cool temperatures in the room if possible. However, I understand that's not always the case, especially when you live in hotter climates. Remove phones, TVs, turn everything off 90 minutes beforehand. Look, we do live in modern day society. we got to kind of make compromises. I understand that and get that. If I quickly went through my sleep routine, it was extremely bad till we had our little one. Now, without actually knowing it, getting him ready and setting him up for bed has caused really good sleep hygiene for myself. So, basically, how that works is we start getting ready around 6, 6.30. We dim all the lights, turn all the lights off, a little light to kind of get changed and go through. By the time we go through all that, we want to wind him down. We get him to bed around quarter past 7, 7.30. I should note we've had dinner before that, so we've spent about an hour winding down, and then by the time we get him to bed, come 8 o'clock, quarter past 8, I'm ready for bed, I'm extremely tired, I'm knackered, I'm in bed by 8.30, however, I'm up at 4.30, caught to 5 the next morning. So that's basically my sleep routine in a nutshell, and my quality of sleep and health has been actually a lot better, which is hard to believe because of that routine. With all that said, and digressing and going way off track, what's the go with sleep and concussion? Sleep disturbances have been shown to affect up to around 70% of those who suffer concussion. This is vitally important and the message I'm going to convey and get through is the things that I go through here, you kind of got to look at it as hard as it may be. Do I want to, I don't want to use the word as better because we're not sick, but do I want to put the foundations and the structure in order to make my recovery from concussion easy as possible and transition back into, we'll say, normal life as early as possible? Or do you want to run the risk of post-concussive syndrome or persistent concussions and symptoms? Completely up to you how you want to play it. Kind of do this and knock this big pillar out with sleep. You're already halfway there. With sleep, there's a huge neurotransmitter effect in the component. And the biggest one here is melatonin along with, like, actually your circadian rhythm. Melatonin, whilst it helps you get to sleep, if you take a supplement, you'll kind of wake up two to three hours later, lady, later, sorry, groggy as hell. So in terms of melatonin, taking it as a supplement to get to sleep with concussion, I wouldn't recommend it, but that's just me. And again, I'm not an endocrinologist. However, now and again with mild traumatic brain injury, you got the big bad nasties, we've ruled them out. Let people sleep. If they say they're tired when they first received a concussion and everything's been ruled out, let them sleep. You do not have to wake them up every couple of hours or every half hour like once thought or every hour believing that I have to wake them up, something's going to happen. No. Once we've ruled everything out, 
let them sleep. If you think about it, our energy stores are low, they're depleted, we need to replenish them, they need rest. That's why you think if you go to situations when people are in hospital and let's just say they've had a heart attack or they've got you know internal organ failure, look, something along them lines, and they put people in induced comas, that's to relax the body. Okay, when we're asleep, body's relaxing. We're recharging, for lack of a better term. Everything's recovering, everything's healing. That's why they go down that route. Now, where most people go wrong is they'll sleep for a few hours. They'll get up, do what they need to do, veg on a couch, go in and out of sleep, sleep again a few hours. Before you know it, your whole body's out of whack. Your rhythm's out of whack. Circadian rhythm starts to get out of whack because you're developing bad habits. Now we can't sleep. And now our sleep patterns... Instead of trying to keep them relatively normal, uh, up a verbal creek without a paddle, okay, without trying to swear. So, it's important to keep our sleep patterns as normal as possible. If you need to nap during the day in the early stages, yes, we can do this, but refrain as quickly as possible from making the habit. When recovering from concussion, we need to get that sleep pattern locked in so i'm going to run through a couple of things to go through in terms of food try and get it in three hours before bed all this is to do with the digestive side of things we're looking at things high in fat and protein minimal carbohydrates and processed food and we'll cover more of this in the actual like dietary episodes of concussion and when recover recovering what to eat so drop the carbohydrates in the processed foods high fats avocados, salmons, almonds, things like that, and protein. If possible, keep the room cool around 22 degrees, okay? If we keep our body cool, we're able to stay asleep. Again, I understand this is hard. Like ourselves, in our bedroom, we don't have an air conditioner. It's 41 degrees in Perth at the moment. Good luck. Keep the room as dark as possible. Windows closed, blinds closed, doors closed. You want it as dark as possible. No lights, phones, electronics. Limit the screen time 60 to 90 minutes before bed. Again, this is going to be hard, especially in modern society. However, if you're tempted by your phone, put your phone out in the, out in the I was going to say the laundry, put your phone out in the lounge room, anywhere that is in your bedroom. Okay? Same with the TV. Unplug the TV. Take the TV out of your room if you're going to find that you're going to watch that. Avoid caffeine and caffeine-rich food or drinks after 12 p.m. I laugh at this one only because it's an epic fail on my behalf. I would have an IV drip of caffeine hooked up to me. I'd drink coffee like it's going out of fashion. Then from here, we move on to actual sleep itself. If you can't fall asleep within the 20-minute marks, get up, walk around the house, put something mind-numbing on like a podcast with some thing earphones in your ear, Listen to that for 20, 30 minutes, then go back to bed, try and get back to sleep. Try and wake up the same time every day and go to bed at the same time every day. And once we've woken up, if we can, direct sunlight within the first 30 minutes. This is a hard one. Perth, it's not too too hard to, uh, to do. However, if you're living in Melbourne or Hobart, especially in winter, it's going to be a little bit harder. So... I do understand there's some nuances here. 
Lastly, good adequate nutrition. And if you're that way inclined and you can, meditation. There's some more nuanced things that we can do. However, these are the big ticket items. I understand it's extremely hard to put into practice for an everyday normal life, so to speak. However, when it comes to recovery, as I said earlier, with concussion, do you want 22 to 30 days of implementing the healthy sleep patterns, diet, exercise that we forgive you for concussion, or do you want to run the gauntlet with PSC? It's completely up to you. However, I recommend kind of knuckle down on this for that period that you've received a concussion. It, it's your choice. That, that's the only way I can put it. I know it's a bit blunt, but when it comes to recovery from concussion, you've really got to put in the work. We can't sit back and go, oh, it's too hard or lazy. And then when things start to kick up, it takes longer to recover and it's harder to recover from bad habits that we've actually put in place. It, it doesn't help. Unfortunately, being so straight isn't great. Oh, that's the only way I can put it. I'm sorry. That's just the way I practice. I've always been that way. Some people love it. Some people don't. Biggest takeaway message from this one as well is that as well as practicing these healthy habits, gone are the days where you've received a concussion, go straight to a dark room, put sunnies on and rest for a couple of days. This does not work. In terms of actual sleep itself, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman runs a Huberman Lab podcast, massive. He's pretty much the Joe Rogan in the neuroside. He does a whole episode dedicated to sleep. I'll find the actual episode that he does with this and I will put the episode in the actual show notes that you can go look up and refer to that because a lot of the things in terms of general good sleepy health habits are all to do with concussion as well. So recapping this, We've briefly covered the theories on metabolic endocrine abnormalities when regards to concussion, and we've talked about sleep and some good hygiene for sleep when in general and when it comes to concussion. Next episode, we'll talk about post-concussion syndrome or persistent concussion symptoms, and we'll go through a little bit of history on that, how it come about, and recovery and what we can actually do, and the percentage of people that end up with PCS and other than that that's pretty much it thank you everyone for listening and I look forward to next episode enjoy and stay safe and that concludes today's episode even though I'm a registered chiropractor all the information provided today is based off my interpretation of the research and is of my opinion and my opinion only this is not a substitute for professional medical advice of your doctors or physician if you believe you're suffering from something similar all the injuries discussed in today's episode, please contact your medical practitioner. I am your host, Dr. Reese Granger. Thank you for listening. <laughs>